Hi, it's Mark Peterson, and today we have a special bonus episode of the FEMA podcast. We're sharing with you, the listener, some of the work done over at the FEMA Resiliency Directorate in the form of prep talks. Prep Talks is an amazing series of talks given by subject matter experts and thought leaders to spread new ideas, spark conversation, and promote innovative leadership for a host of issues confronting emergency managers. But I'm here to tell you, it's not just for emergency managers. Anyone who has a curious mind will find these talks fascinating. So today we're sharing a previously released Prep Talk with Amanda Ripley, who's a journalist and a senior fellow at the Emerson Collective. She combines the inspiring stories of disaster survivors with research into how the brain works when confronted with unusual events to provide advice on how emergency managers can help individuals become more decisive in an emergency. Have a listen, and afterwards, we'll share some information on how you can watch more of these great prep talks. I spent 10 years as a reporter for Time Magazine covering all kinds of disasters. And one of the things that I noticed was over time in everything from terrorist attacks to anthrax to wildfires, all kinds of different disasters, I heard the most interesting and surprising things from the survivors of those incidents. And they were not the things that we were mostly writing about in many of our stories. Usually we turn to survivors for stories of loss and blame and tragedy, which are important to witness. But what I was also hearing was another story, which was things that survivors had learned that they wanted you to know, sometimes very practical things. They had experienced physically, emotionally, even socially, things that they did not expect in the moments leading up to, during, and after a disaster. And it was remarkable how similar their stories were from very different disasters. And yet, very little of that wisdom seemed to be influencing the larger conversations we were having in officialdom about preparedness and planning and the general narrative about what happens in disasters. So I want to talk first about what we expect happens, including the media, and then we'll talk about what actually happens through the story of one survivor. If you look back, almost every major disaster, there's inevitably a media report that marvels at the lack of panic, right? And almost always attributes this stoicism or calm to a cultural oddity of the place where the disaster took place. This was, this was The Economist actually congratulating Americans for their stoicism, which I thought was hilarious. Um, the Economist doesn't typically laud America for its stoicism compared to the UK. But nevertheless, after Hurricane Harvey disappeared, natural disasters bring out Americans' sterling civic spirit, stoicism, and selflessness. All true. The thing is, this happens everywhere. So let me give you an example. Um, This was after the Boston Marathon bombings, and the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette lauded the stoic, resilient spirit that pervades this city, just that city. And then we see it sometimes entire countries, many different languages and cultures. So the Chinese can be very stoic in the face of a disaster. 
Um, and here we have everywhere, Japan's stoic resilience is on display. This is my favorite. Outside the hotel is a line of locals waiting patiently, as perhaps only Japanese people can. So while it's very nice that we in the media are uh, congratulating these survivors on their calm, we need to start connecting the dots and realizing that this is the norm. This is the default reaction. In general, people do not behave as they behave at rush hour on the freeway in disasters. Very different dynamics immediately take hold. So I want to talk a little bit about what actually happens through what survivors have told me. Um, and I think one thing I wanted to start with was um, by just noting my appreciation for these survivors. This is Christian who came to me after my book, The Unthinkable, came out because he wanted to share his story as a warning for the rest of us. So he want, like all survivors, he wanted his story to be worth something. So Christian was living in Singapore. Um, he was from Belgium. And in 2004, he knew he was going to be very homesick, away from his family, where he grew up. So he invited a group of friends to go to uh, Thailand for the holidays. And this is him on a boat approaching this tiny island where he would be staying for Christmas. It's a beautiful place that was uh, made famous by Leonardo DiCaprio in the movie The Beach, if you ever saw it. But it's a very tiny island um, on a strip of land, as you can see. A beautiful place. He had a wonderful time with his friends. And the morning after Christmas, he was awakened by some slight shaking of an earthquake around 8.30 a.m. in his hotel room. He knew it was an earthquake because he had experience that was relevant. He had lived in Los Angeles at some point and pretty much had a good idea of what that feeling was. So he got up and immediately went over to the window and stared out at the sea. So he had a little more information, which was valuable, which was that sometimes tsunami come after earthquakes. And he stared at the sea for about five or ten minutes, and then, you know, looking for the kind of wall of water that he was expecting from movies, and he didn't see anything, so he decided he was being silly, and he went down to breakfast and really didn't think too much about it anymore after that. So what we find in most disasters is that this is very, very typical, that your brain, as Dennis alluded to, will go to great lengths to come up with ways to normalize a situation, even when you have a little more wisdom about what may or may not be the risk. Firefighters have great stories about this. If you know a firefighter, ask them. They will tell you about going into a bar or a department store or a movie theater and watching f smoke fill the ceiling and everybody's just sitting there and looking at you. So this is a very common thing where you, it's totally understandable, right? You will try to fit what is happening into patterns for everything that's happened before. That is how we function, right? We cannot get through the day without that. So the problem is if we don't have training and experience then in a particular emergency, then we will try to do that. We all do it, even people with training do this. Um, so this is a picture that was taken moments before the tsunami, a couple hours after Christian woke up. Um, he had gone up to his room to pack and check out. And um, around this time, there was a second natural warning sign of a possible tsunami. In addition to an earthquake, a warning sign that sometimes occurs is that the sea begins behaving strangely. So recedes, become very shallow, frothy, sort of churning. And people, the tourists on the beach, notice this. In many cases, 
discussed it with each other, which is the milling that Dennis was talking about. It's very common for people to become very social in these situations and want to share information. And they're, in fact, walking towards the water because there isn't enough latent wisdom in this crowd about what this might indicate. So here is an opportunity, right? If people knew when they checked into their hotel rooms in a tsunami inundation zone that this was a sign of a possible tsunami, then this would have been a very useful moment, right, this deliberation. In the case of Christian, he was packing his bag, not thinking anything was wrong, in this beautiful place, when he suddenly heard a loud slam, and he felt the impact of the water against his building. He was on the second floor of a relatively flimsy two-story building. And he noticed that the lights went out in his room, um, and he heard some strange noises. You can see this is a picture taken during the tsunami somewhere else in Thailand. You can see in the upper left corner a uh, picture of the water approaching, people running away. But even then, he tried to make sense of it and to normalize it, which is what we all do. I've caught myself doing it many, many times. So in his case, he came up with the narrative that perhaps there were some guests checking out and their rolling suitcases had banged into something, and that's what had created the disruption. Um, And apparently the power had been cut on by this too. So he continued packing. And then he went to the bathroom and went to wash his hands, and the no water came out. Now this was enough to trigger a sense that maybe everything wasn't as normal as he thought. So he opened the door from his room to see what was going on, and the water was about two inches below the second floor where his room was. And here's what's interesting. In this moment, he looks around. There's water everywhere. The restaurant where he'd just eaten breakfast is gone. Just everything is covered. And what his brain did was sort and try to find an explanation that it had experienced before. And the only thing he could think of was that it was similar to when it would snow in his native country of Belgium. And you'd walk outside, and it was so still and peaceful and quiet. And this is a very powerful thought. It was just like a snow day. And it was dead silent. And there were some people, just like him, looking out, trying to make sense of what was happening. And so they went into, went from this stage of denial and disbelief, into a stage of deliberation or milling where they started talking to each other, shouting to each other. Do you think this was a tsunami, Christian said? And they all agreed that it probably was. But it was nothing like he had expected. It was very quiet. People were very calm or stoic. (laughs) They did not panic. They did not get hysterical. They did not start punching each other out. They needed each other quite desperately. So why would they do that, right? So in his case, he, uh, the water quickly receded. And you can see this is a picture he took just moments after the tsunami. And the destruction was unimaginable. Half the population, there were 5,000 people on that island, half of them were dying. And his mind slowly, slowly began to absorb what was happening. And he grabbed a backpack that had some, a first aid kit and started trying to find survivors and administer first aid and... Um, It was a very difficult, as you can imagine, traumatic experience for everyone involved. Um, He went back to Singapore, back to his life, and couldn't couldn't do that, couldn't reconcile it. So he started a charity and 
that built boats for fishermen who had been displaced by the tsunami. Um, and he lives to this day with a lot of guilt because he had this moment where he went to the window and he thought, maybe there's going to be a tsunami, and he didn't act on it. And that's why he wants to tell this story. Now, what I tell Christian is, you know, wouldn't it have been nice if you'd gotten a message, a warning message, or someone had given you this information? It's not just on you, you know, but it feels like it's just on you. And what he wants you to know is, if you're in charge of emergency management, you need to deputize that information. You need to make sure everybody in your office building knows what the warning signs are, and that they've gone down the stairs and they've trained for it physically. If you don't do that, he said, you will not want to live with yourself afterward. You need to trust people with as much knowledge as you can give them and as much physical muscle memory of getting out of a place as they will allow you to introduce them to. Because you don't want to have to think in a disaster. It will not go well. It is not how our brains are designed to deal with new, unrecognizable patterns under stress is almost impossible to behave quickly. So knowing this, there are things we can do. We know that we can train for these three phases that most people go through, right? We can develop warnings and emergency plans expecting there to be a period of denial followed by a period of deliberation, followed by a decisive moment where you take action or, as is much more common, you do not take action. Much more common than panic is what the airlines call negative panic, which is a sort of lethargy or freezing, which, again, there are good evolutionary reasons for doing that, depending on the disaster. So these are the things we know and we can plan for. As a counterpoint, Christian wanted me to talk about a little girl, much like him, who was from the UK, visiting a place she'd never been, at the same exact moment in Thailand. So similar to him in a lot of ways, similar level of privileges and advantages, education, although she was 10. (laughs) But she was there with her family on holiday. And she was walking down the beach the same morning. And she noticed how the sea was behaving strangely. And she had, in her science class back home, recently learned about the warning signs of a tsunami. And Tilly turned to her parents and she said, I think there's going to be a tsunami. This, the sea is, you know, it's shallow, it's frothy. This is, this is one way you know there's going to be a tsunami. And her parents did what most of us would do without that knowledge and tried to tell her everything was fine, to calm her down, to make sure, you know, she didn't freak out. And they kept walking. And at some point, Tilly sat down in the sand and refused to go on because she was so convinced that there's something wrong. There's two things about this. The first is the incredible power of just a little bit of information, and the second is the incredible courage of children. Children are wide open to this stuff, which is why firefighters are constantly showing up at schools, right? Children are open to this. They're not as likely to fit everything into pre-existing narratives because they don't have as many cluttering up their brains, right? And they're not as worried about being embarrassed to their great credit. So... Her father agreed to take her back to the hotel. The mother went on walking on the beach. And they get to the hotel, and now this is where the deliberation, the social part happens. So her father does something very brave, which is he turns to one of the Marriott employees and he says, I know you're going to think I'm crazy, but my daughter is 
is worried there's going to be a tsunami because the sea is doing this weird thing, and, which everyone had noticed. And uh, you know, she heard that that could be a warning sign. And it happened that there was a Japanese tourist standing right there and overheard him and said, you know, I read that there was an earthquake in Sumatra earlier, so it could be that there is going to be a tsunami. You know, she might have a point. And together, the three of them discussed it and then did something very courageous, which is they cleared the beach. They screamed and yelled and got everybody, including Tilly's mother, back. And they went to a higher floor, and no one died on the beach that day. This was a very difficult story for Christian to read because he felt like he could have done that, right? This 10-year-old girl did this. But the point is we did it together, right? Like her teacher did it. Her father did it. The Marriott employee did it. And this is the kind of thing that we know, everyone in this room knows, that it is regular people, your friends and families and coworkers and hotel workers who will be there for you in a disaster. So our best chance is to trust them more with more information sooner, more transparency than we're comfortable with. Then we know we're doing it right. Thank you all so much for listening. It is a true honor to be here with you today. If you enjoyed this episode of Prep Talks, we have really good news for you. We have many more episodes at fema.gov slash prep talks. That's fema.gov slash P-R-E-P-T-A-L-K-S prep talks, all one word. We've linked to this episode on our FEMA Facebook page, and we invite you to join the conversation in the comments. If you have ideas for a future topic, send us an email at fema-podcast at fema.dhs.gov. If you would like to learn more about this episode or other topics, visit fema.gov slash podcast. Podcast.